Welcome to the CBIA BizCast. I'm your host, Allie Warshavsky, and today on our podcast, we are speaking with CBIA's very own HR counsel, Diane Okriski. She's here to break down the top asked questions of 2021 and the ones she expects to hear in 2022. And Diane, this is, uh, as we record today, you're celebrating one year here. It's been quite a very busy year for you. That's right. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's been one year. I think yesterday was my anniversary date officially. So yeah, it's been definitely an interesting year with COVID. We've had lots of COVID related questions, obviously. And so yeah, I guess we're going to touch on some of those today. Yes. I know when we spoke earlier, you mentioned that a bunch in the beginning of the year were on these temporary laws. Um, Luckily, a lot of them have gone away, but our first one does kind of touch on this. Are we required to provide paid sick leave to our employees when they test positive for COVID? And what about paid leave when an employee has to quarantine? That was something that I know in the beginning of the year, you did have to, correct? Right, and that's, it's interesting. You can really tell, I can really tell just by being in this job that numbers are going up because in 2020, um, yeah, that was a law. It was a federal law called the Families First Coronavirus Relief Act. And so between April and December of 2020, employers were actually required to provide paid sick leave for COVID-related issues. And then for the next uh, nine months, between January and September of this year, employers could still provide paid leave and they would get um, a tax break on their payroll taxes. So now for a while over the summer, those questions went down, numbers were going down, and employers were not asking about paid leave anymore. But like I said, in the last month or so, I've been getting that question a lot. Whatever, what happened? Didn't there used to be paid leave for COVID? And so um, there is not now paid leave for COVID. Um, And so that federal law expired on September 30th. And so it's now been about three months where there is no program for paid leave. And so if an employer if an employer has employees who are sick, they'll just rely on the internal employer policies. So if you have PTO, the employee will use PTO. That's interesting because it's not to say that a company might have just adopted an internal policy saying if you contract COVID, we will pay you. You don't have to wear use your vacation time. But federally, it's not. Um, regulated. Right. So an employer, of course, can have a policy saying, hey, if you're sick with COVID or if you're quarantining, we'll provide you a certain number of days of paid leave. An employer Mm -hmm. can always do that. It's just not being mandated by the federal government like it was last year. Good to know, especially if you just hear something different from what your friend is doing. That's right. Yeah, the government, um, you're not out there, not obligated anymore. Well, that is a good question and something that I'm sure will be on people's minds for the next few months, unfortunately. Our second question that you said you had been seeing a lot is, should we be doing anything to prepare for the federal vaccine mandates, even though they're all on hold in the court system? And I know the past month of your life has probably been dedicated to studying this what is going on with this yeah so yeah that's it's funny because you spend as a lawyer you spend so much time studying these laws and then they say nope it's on hold forget everything we just said Mm -hmm. so there are three federal vaccine mandates one is for federal contractors one is for large employers private employers um, and the other is for healthcare workers. And all three were vaccine mandates um, mandated by the federal government. 
and um, all three are on hold. They're going through the court system. And so I do get that question a lot, should, should we be doing anything anyway? And so at CBIA, we actually recommend that employers do take some initial steps, even though it's not in effect. What we don't know is um, if the courts ultimately uphold these vaccine mandates, we don't know how much time the employers will have to get into compliance. And at least as of now, um, at least one deadline has already passed. There was a December deadline to come up with a policy. And there's a January deadline to um, start vaccinating or testing. So while on the one hand, employers can choose to um, hold off on the vaccination requirement and the testing requirement, what we recommend is that employers take that initial step come up with the policy that they would use if the mandate went into effect, and most importantly, just come up with a plan. So if you're one of those employers that's gonna do weekly testing, you should figure out where are we getting our tests? Who's gonna pay for them? Are they always gonna be done on Fridays? You know, things like that, so that when the mandate, if the mandate is upheld, you're ready to go. Yeah, you don't want to get stuck with learning Monday that you have until Friday <laughs> That's right. to put this all together. Um, so I know CBIA, when, when you did do your webinar, Chris had said, you know, you have to act like it's happening right, right now. Yeah, I think that makes the most sense. It, it would be very stressful to learn that you only have a few days because it's, it's, it's a pretty significant administrative burden. So you really want to take as many steps as you can to get ready. Well, hopefully anyone listening to this already has their plan on <laughs> right. plan in place or so you're going to be getting a lot of more calls <laughs> in right. January um, but now of course we are in winter we are so lucky by the way I remember I think last December we had already had at least a snowstorm by now so yep. we're doing pretty good um, but a big question especially now that we've got hybrid work and remote work um, do we have to pay employees when we're closed due to inclement weather is something that people have been asking you yep. Yeah, so the answer to that is uh, sometimes. It kind of depends on what type of employee you have um, and whether you, whether you have decided as a business to close down or whether an employee has decided to stay home because they feel it's unsafe. So let's start with a situation where an employer closes. Let's say they actually notify all the employees the day before um, that we're going to be closed tomorrow. So if, the, if that employer has, sal has, I'm sorry, hourly employees, not exempt from any overtime laws, so they punch in and punch out, the employer does not have to pay those workers because the rule in Connecticut is that you just pay those workers for hours they actually work. So if you close and they don't come in, you don't have to pay them. One exception to that is um, there are some workers who work either in the restaurant industry or at retail if you require them to come in and then send them home, there are certain rules that say you have to pay a certain minimum number of hours. Hmm. Okay. Um, it gets a little trickier when we're talking about exempt employees, people who get the same weekly salary no mm -hmm. matter what. And that's kind of the idea. You get the same weekly salary no matter what. So the rule there is that if an exempt employee works at all during the week, they get their weekly paycheck if the, even if the employer shuts down. Mm -hmm. So let's say um, an employee works on Monday and Tuesday, and then the, there's a blizzard, and the employer shuts down their office Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. An exempt employee gets their regular paycheck, just mm -hmm. like always, because they did some work that week. 
If on the other hand, an exempt employee didn't work on Monday, and then the employer closes the rest of the week, Ooh. because, because <laughs> that employee didn't work at all that week, they don't have to be paid Ooh. their paycheck. So it kind of depends. So exempt, non-exempt is an issue, mm -hmm. and who decides to close. So the one thing we didn't touch on is when an employee decides mm -hmm. to stay home because they don't feel safe or they just don't want to risk driving. In that case, the employer can require that employee to use their PTO. Because if, the, if the business is staying open, but the employee just says, I just don't want to risk it, then the employer can require them to use PTO. Well, hopefully and luckily with these new hybrid models and working from home, an employer will just be like, if you can log in from home. That's right. You know, you yeah. hope that is the case. But of course, it's up to their discretion now. Um, well, we will pray for one, no blizzards that shut down offices for three <laughs> weeks because that just seems like a lot of shoveling um, and some complicated times ahead. But so far, so good. Now, we are in, in the winter break season. A lot of kids are coming home from college and looking for internships. Um, is it okay if a company uses a college student home on break for an unpaid internship? Yes and no, and I know people hate that answer. Lawyers always say, well, maybe, it, it depends. Internships were always, unpaid internships were always a really important thing in my day. I've done my share of unpaid <laughs> internships, but really the, the truth of the matter is the Labor Department doesn't favor them. They really want people to get at least minimum wage with, with some limited exceptions. So you can, as an employer, you can have unpaid interns, but there are lots of rules. And so the primary rule is that the intern has to be what's called the primary beneficiary of the relationship. So the intern is the person who's supposed to get the most out of it. So as an employer, you would never want to have an unpaid intern take the place of someone who otherwise would be paid. You wouldn't want to like fill a role that's normally filled by someone who's paid. So because you don't want, the employer is really not even supposed to benefit very much. It's mostly for the benefit of the intern. So that's the main idea. Um, there, and then there are several factors, none of which are required but are all considered. And those are things like, is it really made clear in writing that there's no expectation of any payment? Um, if the internship kind of coincides with the academic calendar, that will make it more likely to be found to be an internship. Um, there should be some sort of correlation with the um, curriculum. It should really track an educational curriculum that the, that the intern is following. So if, so like for example, let's say you had graduated from high school and you just wanted to do an unpaid internship to get experience. Um, that really wouldn't, because you're not following any type of curriculum, that person would really need to be paid. It's so interesting, <laughs> and we spoke about this a few days ago, that back when I was in college, finding an internship was very tough, let alone having them pay you was almost unheard yeah. of. Now there's such a labor shortage that they would probably be like, we won't give you an internship, we'll give you a part-time yeah, job. We'll give you a job. And yeah. you can, you know, and... Um, and then you'll add that to your resume. So times have changed. Um, I'd be interested to see even how many um, paid internships there are now versus a long time ago. But interesting to know. And another thing I know is a lot of institutions 
required internship as a credit. So I guess if they're getting it for credit yes. but unpaid, that's fully an internship because they're actually paying right. for if it. You, yeah, that's true. Yep. Yeah, so um, if you get academic credit, that'll actually, that will definitely be a help in showing that it's an internship. Um, I actually had a member call recently. It, the internship actually sounded so interesting. It had to do with um, social media. Mm -hmm. And the intern was going to provide social media assistance to the uh, employer. And the, he was taking classes in that area in college had kind of exhausted the classes, so couldn't get any more credit. And so what they did was they just had a college professor contact the employer and say, this would be great if you could have this person do this internship, because it would really kind of it'd be the next step in their education. And so that I think that was a really important step to take. Yeah, that's really cool. And what a resume they're building. Um, you know, we do have a labor shortage, and we've got a lot of kids who probably just turned 16. Um, paying way more now than I was ever offered as a 16-year-old um, who might want to work at the mall for the holidays or, or, you know, an ice cream shop after school. Are there limitations on the number of hours a minor can work, um, you know, like a high school student during their school year or during their break? Yeah, so there are, the Labor Department limits two things. Uh, one is the types of industries where minors can even work. So that's, I mean, if you if you work uh, in a hazardous type of area, you'd want to go to the Labor Department site and make sure you can even employ minors at mm -hmm. all. So then in terms of the number of hours they can work, there are limits to um, what time of day a student can work during the school year mm -hmm. when school is in session. And then when school is not in session, so for example, during Christmas break um, and holiday breaks, there are limits to the number of hours per day they can work. Oh. And that's very clear cut, actually. So a 16 or 17 year old can work uh, eight hours a day, uh, six days a week if, they're, if school is not in session. So the limit is 48 hours a week, but it's eight hours a day, so it can't be 10 hours a day, 10 hours a day, eight. so the, the limit daily is eight, and the limit weekly is 48. And that'd be a lot to juggle if you were in high school too. Like for yeah. summer, summer camps make sense, but be a lot for the school year. Um, but $13 an hour I see you have down yeah. here making. Yeah, Woo. that's minimum wage, 13 Woo. All right. <laughs> well. Um, we do have some new laws as well, and I know that this is one that we spoke about earlier because a lot of people are asking it. When an employee is out on paid family leave, do they have to maintain their health insurance? Yeah, this was actually a hot topic on a webinar we recently did on FMLA. And the really one thing that's really important for employers to remember, and which is also I know so frustrating, is that you're, you have to comply with lots of different laws. So Connecticut's family and medical leave law, which will go into effect January 1st, does not require that employers maintain health insurance while a person is out. And so, though, it would be a mistake to just say, okay, that's it, we don't, then we don't have to do it. So that's one law. But there are other laws that say you do have to maintain health insurance. One of them is federal FMLA, mm -hmm. and that um, applies to employers uh, with 50 or more employees. But if you're, even if you have fewer than 50 and you're not subject to federal FMLA, Connecticut has insurance statutes. And those um, insurance statutes cover 
uh, fully insured health insurance plans. So employers can be self-insured or fully insured. If you're fully insured, um, you're subject to these insurance statutes and those statutes require you to maintain the employee's health insurance while they're out. And that they actually require that you keep their health insurance going for as long as 12 months. Now that doesn't mean you're gonna keep the employee employed for 12 months necessarily. Maybe you give them 12 weeks of family leave and then that's really kind of all you can handle. Um, so you keep their health insurance going for 12 weeks and if you end up letting them go, they go on COBRA. But this question actually comes up a lot with workers' compensation because mm -hmm. workers' compensation injuries often last many months. Mm -hmm. And so if you're keeping that employee um, on your books, you haven't let them go, then you have to keep their health insurance going as long as the employee pays their share of the premium. Interesting. And you would assume that if you are out on paid family leave, you probably need your insurance the most. I know, right? It's, it kind of <laughs> makes sense. Like the reason why you're out is because you you have a medical issue yeah. probably. And yep. So you need your, your health insurance mm -hmm. more than ever. Yeah. It's expensive though for employers. You're not getting the work from the employee. And so you may not you're hoping you don't have to hold their health insurance. And we do have this thing called long haul COVID that has um, right. become very popular. Um, so even though someone might be out with COVID for their 10 day quarantine, it's now become a bigger issue of, is COVID a sickness that is covered over, under the Paid Family Leave Act? Right, and so, I mean, typically, hopefully, if you have COVID, you, you are sick, you're, you have serious symptoms for several days and the rest of the time you're kind of recovering and just not going to work so you don't expose other people. Mm -hmm. um, and so in most cases, probably having testing positive for COVID will not be covered by um, FMLA. However, I mean, that's, any, any person, any employee who tests positive can always apply for benefits with the insurance authority and they ultimately will decide and it'll just depend on what the employee's doctor says. Mm -hmm. If the doctor writes out a note that says this person was very seriously ill mm -hmm. for 10 days, then that, that employee may qualify for paid leave. But as you mentioned with the long haul, the long haulers really are much more likely to be covered by paid family leave mm -hmm. because like the name implies, they're out of work for a really long time. They have these significant symptoms that are really debilitating. Mm -hmm. And so in that case, it's much more likely to be covered by family leave, family and medical leave. Mm -hmm. And of course, a lot of this would be those cases where you have someone who might be in the hospital for weeks, right. let alone um, being testing positive. Um, we're going to switch gears from, from the Paid Family Leave Act to marijuana. It is a new <laughs> big switch there, but uh, marijuana um, is a big change to Connecticut law this year, and that left a lot of employers with questions, but webinar you've done as well. And you said that one that you were getting was, does the, legaliz does the legalization of marijuana mean that we're limited in our ability to discipline employees for using it at work? Such an interesting question because I don't think my boss would appreciate me drinking a margarita at my desk, right. um, even though it's legal. And I feel the same for someone might smoking. Uh, definitely 
outside of the building, we'd hope as well, not inside. Yeah, yeah that's, kind of a, that's a good way to look at it, actually. And I mention that a lot, to kind of think of it as uh, drinking alcohol. So beginning this year, um, you can possess um, marijuana in Connecticut. You can have one and a half ounces on your person, or you can have five ounces in a locked container. So you can, you can use and have um, cannabis. Of course, that doesn't mean you can use and have it at work, right? Just like <laughs> alcohol. So yeah, there were a lot of employers who were concerned, and I think still are concerned, about whether they're limited in how they can discipline employees at work. And really, so the law that made it legal to possess cannabis is in effect right now. Starting next July, um, a law goes in, that a part of the law goes into effect that limits how an employer can discipline employees. But it, the limits are uh, minuscule. So really an employer, even next year, an employer can have a policy that of course makes it against the rules to use cannabis at work. You can um, drug test employees in the same way, which means you have reasonable suspicion to believe someone's uh, using cannabis at work, then you can test them. Really, the only significant change with the new law is it limits an employer's ability to discipline an employee for using cannabis outside of work, which mm -hmm. makes sense because it's legal to use it outside of work. So just like you maybe wouldn't discipline an employee for drinking on the weekend, assuming they come in sober on Monday, um, you wouldn't discipline them for using cannabis on the weekends as well. And so it really, and it kind of becomes relevant for drug testing because cannabis stays in your system often more than 30 days. Mm -hmm. And so what we're really telling employers is that it's, it's time now to kind of sit down and think and figure out what do you want your rules to be? So if you're gonna do pre-employment testing, are you gonna test for cannabis? Because mm -hmm. a lot of people are gonna test positive. And what will you do then? It could have been, if they test positive, all that means is that maybe a month ago, someone used legal cannabis, and are you not gonna hire them as a result? Mm -hmm. So you kind of have to reevaluate what your policies are gonna be, and then figure out really what's important to you um, and what you want your policies to be. Is, is very interesting um, because some employers do make you take the drug test before they even offer you that right. employment. So if there is a stigma or bias around it and they're testing for it, it'd be interesting of what they do with your application, right? Once they right. see that, especially if it's legal now. So um, it, it's a very interesting and complicated subject, I think. And um, luckily I'm not in a position to discipline anyone. <laughs> I appreciate that because I think it does have to be treated like alcohol, but at the same time, um, it's just so tricky because it's new. And I feel like in right. three years, it'll be common policy of just don't come into work where you're inhibited, right? Like right. where, you, and, and, but right now it's like, what do we do? And I feel like in three years, it won't even cross our minds, right? Yeah. Hopefully, if, if it's if people use it wisely. Um, so from marijuana, another smooth transition into sexual harassment <laughs> training. Okay. But again, these are all very um, popular topics yeah. that people have been asking you. And this one is, how often does a company have to provide sexual harassment training? If a new employee arrives having had the training at their old job, do they have to be trained again? Right. So. Um, Employers have to train their employees within six months of them being hired. 
and they have to provide two hours of this it's uh, anti-harassment training so the training is basically telling people uh, what harassment is uh, what the what kind of damages you can get if you're a victim things like that so that's two hours worth of that you do it within six months of hire and then you just have to do it every 10 years and so the every 10 year part is not onerous at all right um, it's just a matter of kind of keeping track of your new hires and if possible kind of uh, grouping them together so that you're not constantly doing the sexual harassment training but if you can kind of get your group of new people together so that everyone gets trained uh, within six months that'll comply and there is a video that the CHRO does for training and the reason why I mention that is because if you hire someone who has already been trained um, you can accept that that will count as training but only if it was done by this agency the CHRO so I could train you um, I give sexual harassment training if I give you that training and then you go to another employer you have to be trained again okay. but if you watch this CHRO video that will count and you can kind of take it with you to your mm -hmm. new employer Good to know. Well, Diane, thank you so much for making the time. Um, if for anyone who's listening to this and is a CBIA member, she, her phone line is always open for better or for worse, right? <laughs> so if you have a question that's not on this list, um, even if you think it's silly, she's the one to go to and she will answer those for you. So online, we will post that HR hotline number. And so thank you so much. And thank you for listening to the BizCast. You can listen or subscribe to our podcast on Apple, YouTube, SoundCloud. And for more episodes, head on over to CBIA.com. Thanks, Ellen.